Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Four days before Lou's interview airs. From WDSU New Orleans Evening News. In more grisly and chilling news involving the violence and bizarre incidents happening in Mandeville, two bodies were discovered by filmmakers and television personality Derek Reynolds in his apartment last night. Reynolds, who'd been filming a segment for his popular cable network program Cult Hunters in Mandeville, had just returned to his CBD apartment sometime after midnight. Upon entry to his home, he was greeted by the desecrated remains of two colleagues, identified as Morgan Anders of Columbus, Ohio, and Jeremy Parson of Jackson, Mississippi, both who'd been working as actors in Reynolds' program. At this time, police are not commenting on the possible connection between the double homicide and the events that recently rocked the small North Shore community, allegedly all centered around the notorious acts of 2015 involving Jeffrey Woods, a teenage boy who'd go on to murder both his parents along with several other victims, two of which were also teens before vanishing without a trace. It's interesting to note that Reynolds was actually interviewing Jane Arkansas, a young Mandeville woman who was also victimized by home intruders dressed as the iconic Jeff the Killer. New Orleans police have asked anyone with information related to the murders of Anders and Parsons to please call the Crime Stoppers hotline located on your screen. WDSU will continue to investigate and report the latest developments in this strange and terrifying case as it develops. Dalton Bradshaw, formerly of the Manderville Police Department, sat up in the small bed he was sharing with his bartender, Sherry Willis, and lit a cigarette. She reached over and grabbed the pack of Pall Mall Reds, taking one for herself as well. Dalton chuckled, trying not to sound too jaded to the world around him before spilling the contents of his mind into his recently found lover. So, that shit leaked right out of Mandeville and is spilling into New Orleans now. Funny. Most of those lily-white commuters living over there were always terrified of New Orleans crime spilling into their backyards. Funny little world, isn't it? Too funny she replied, taking a drag and watching the smoke drift up to her ceiling. Since Dalton had been terminated from his position as a detective with the MPD, she'd been falling asleep and waking up with him almost every night. Apparently, what she'd thought would at first be a one-night stand fueled mostly by pity with a dash of attraction tossed in was becoming something totally different. She wasn't falling for him, exactly. Sherry wasn't the type of young woman to do such things. She made it to 26 years of age without ever having an official boyfriend. Therefore, she'd never had an official breakup. She liked it that way. And regardless of the strange Dick Tracy-like charm and excitement that Dalton was bringing into her life, she had no intention of changing her late-night habits to conform to any traditional social rules of these great United States. He seemed just fine with that which both pleased and annoyed Sherry at the same time. She didn't want a relationship, but Dalton's pragmatic views of the emotional and intellectual connection that she did feel for him scared her a bit. He was almost twice her age, 
He had been married at least twice that she knew of and likely had children walking the planet that he either didn't claim or didn't know existed. Regardless of the pride that Sherry Willis took in her impulsive and often reckless lifestyle, she knew that Dalton could hurt her. She wasn't concerned about any physical hurt. She knew that he was, at the very least, the sort of honorable man that wouldn't strike a woman. What she feared was that he was, in her own term, sherry-proof. Working as a French Quarter bartender gave her the eyes and ears of countless patrons that wandered, or staggered, into her establishment. Her countless tattoos, she honestly had to guess at the real number now, and carefree lifestyle made her a big draw for the young men and a few women that became lost in her enigmatic nature. It wasn't that she delighted in, or even enjoyed, being able to play the puppet master role with those that fancied her unique flavors, but rather, it was the safety in being the one in control that brought her comfort. With Dalton Bradshaw, she knew that she couldn't hurt him. And in that strange twist of irony, that meant that he could hurt her. She admitted only to herself when she was alone that she needed to be needed. Whether it was some tourist who wanted to take home the freaky girl, or some snooty artist from the quarter that wanted to get her naked under the guise of sketching her, she liked the wanting look in their eyes. With him, the only want was a fierce desire to savor the moment he was in. She had been quite wrong about his physical prowess in the bedroom. At first, she believed that he'd be huffing and puffing before he was even halfway done. But he carried a strength quiet but intense, and when he laid her down, she could do nothing to escape his powerful aura. She was enthralled by the physical roller coaster ride of endorphins that he could bring her on. But when he was done, when he would roll over and light a cigarette, she could tell that if she should cease to exist at that very moment, the steam engine that is Dalton would simply chug along as though it never stopped. So, this Derek guy, I remember him, you know. I had transferred to Mandeville when he started making all those crazy reports about being kidnapped by a cult. But I still had a lot of friends in the NOPD. He told me all about him. Now the kid's famous. Get on him, Dalton explained. Are you spending the night? Sherry asked. If you'll have me, darling. She would. The night he'd come home with her, he'd been fired from his job with the police. Another setup. Dalton had kept a little baggie of Adderall in his glove compartment for late night work or early morning shifts. He'd never have believed that Chief Hardy would have the balls to go into his personal vehicle. He told Sherry about the incident time and time again, and as he lit a second Pall Mall, she could tell just by his agitated inhale, she was going to hear about it once more. I was a fucking idiot, he began. Never should have kept that dope in my car. I mean, it was my car. Since it was used for official business now and then, I eventually gave my boss permission to search it any time he wanted to. Christ, though, Sherry. And I'd known he was after my badge like that. Hardy had called Dalton into his office following the death of Simon Lyman at the hands of a very mentally disturbed fellow officer. The bag of amphetamines was sitting on his desk. Dalton knew he was in a tight spot, but believed he could explain it away without losing his shield. Why is this in your glove box? Hardy asked. Why were you in my car? Shut up, Bradshaw. 
I'm on a very thin line of decision making regarding you right now, so don't be the dumb asshole that talks himself out of what little favor I might be willing to do for you. Bradshaw shut his mouth. Hardy continued. This is a controlled substance, detective. Now, I checked your file, and I don't see anything on record that indicates you're legally prescribed this medication. Can you call your doctor right now and verify this? No. No, it's not prescribed to me. Dalton answered in a quiet tone, choosing his words carefully. And detective, what is the department policy on officers possessing narcotics that don't belong to them? It's a violation, sir. What does the law say about possession of drugs that don't belong to them? It's illegal, sir. No shit, it's illegal. Police detective breaking the law during a time when more and more people out there are losing faith in the cops. And here, in Mandeville, where people have lots of good reason not to trust public officials at the moment. What, what, is the, what, is the, what in the blue hell were you thinking having this shit in your car? Well, someone gave it to me. I was going to... Hardy cut him off. You're going to what? He asked as he produced a small plastic cup and sat it next to the bag of pills. Dalton knew what the little cup was for, with its measured lines and clinical instructions. If I were to have you piss in this right now, dip a little testing strip in there, you think there would be anything of concern for you? Sir, I was out of line earlier, okay? I shouldn't have stood here and let Lyman disrespect you like you did. I, I just... I want to close the case. The pills help from time to time. It's all. I'm not a junkie, okay? You know me better than that. Bradshaw, the case is closed on this Jeff Wood bullshit. Done and over with. And so is your career here in Mandeville. Wait. Are you going to shit can me over a few pet pills? Dalton, listen carefully. If I piss test you, you're out the door and out of police work. At your age, no police department is going to want to take you in and have to train all of your bad habits out of you. Police work is for the young and impressionable now. Old dogs like us. Well, unless you make it to the big office like I did, you're, you're hanging by a thread. But I will do you a favor, okay? I'll let you resign effective immediately. You could say that watching your buddy Agent Lyman get shot was too much for you. You had to take a break, then decided you didn't want to come back. You could still draw your pension without the black mark of, of termination for pissing hot in your personnel file. You'll land on your feet in time. Now that deal hinges on you leaving without a big fuss. I don't, I don't want to see you rabble-rousing out there. Just leave your badge and your gun on my desk. Go home. Now, someone on the night shift, clean out your desk and locker. We'll get any personal possessions back to you nice and quiet. That way you don't have to take the walk of shame from here to your car. You go quietly into the night. And I'll make sure to write a glowing recommendation for you. Bradshaw stood in shock. He felt as though a sledgehammer had been taken to his stomach. His face was flushed with the heat of embarrassment and anger. He wanted to reach over Hardy's desk and pummel the little corrupt fucker. However, however, soon-to-be former employer was correct about the limitations of age. Should he be terminated for violating a drug policy, in addition to the handful of other acts of malfeasance he'd got written up for during his time as a detective? He could likely end up lucky to work as a mall security guard. 
With a good letter of recommendation, though, he could probably return to the NOPD. Maybe even retain his detective position instead of having to go back to wearing a uniform. He'd also run the risk of losing his pension should he be terminated in this fashion. He hated Hardy. With a passion. But he couldn't turn down the man's sadistic offer of mercy. I still think you should have slapped the shit out of him, Sherry told him as she lit a second smoke of her own. Yeah, sure. Then I could be unemployed and sitting in a lockup on battery charges. No, he fucked me over, Sherry. He knew what he was doing. He did, he did it by the numbers. Sometimes it goes that way. Sometimes you just lose. Sherry released a sigh. She accepted that he was close to two decades her senior, but Dalton's habits of speaking as though he were explaining some life lesson to a wayward child annoyed her to no end. This, coupled with her other concerns over her unlikely connection with the man, finally caused her annoyance to show. Dalton, what am I in your eyes? Hmm. What's that supposed to mean? I don't know. Am I... Am I just some wet-behind-the-ears, 20-something to you? Am I just some chick with a body that hasn't started to droop in the wrong places yet? I've come to terms with the fact that you don't see me as an equal. But you at least see me as an adult? Dalton let out a sarcastic laugh as he picked up an empty condom wrapper from her nightstand and held it up. I don't know where all this is coming from, Sherry. But I'm pretty damn sure I see you as an adult. I don't mean an adult in the sense that you can't legally fuck me. I mean mentally, intellectually. Do you see me as a woman, or just, just some girl? Cherry, the last few weeks have been a hell on earth for me. My partner got his brains blown right out in front of me. I was screwed out of my job, and my so-called brothers of the badge in Mandeville won't even return a damn call. Hardy probably told them to stay away from me. Limp dicks are too worried about their paychecks to see what's right in front of them. And guess what? Through all that, you're the person that's given me comfort. Get my ass sane. You're the person that I look forward to seeing because you remind me that it's not the whole damn world that's crazy. So yeah, I see you as an adult, okay? I need you right now. You're something actually good in this this pool of shit I find myself drowning in. She'd honestly not expected him to open up so quickly and easily, and had been far more prepared to lambast him further than to process a real human response. Instead, she simply allowed herself to smile a bit, taking in whatever good vibes his midnight confession brought out in her. Dalton, if you're in a tight spot, let me know. Maybe I can help. Yeah, that's the problem. This shit in Mandeville isn't done yet. And it ain't gonna be done until something big happens. That's what I think, anyway. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Me and Lyman. We did a lot of investigating between the time that asshole Trent Vickers was pulled down from the wall in a shortcut road to the time that other asshole Hardy fired me. And I have information I can't... I can't take to Hardy. Can't take what I have to the state or the feds until I get something conclusive. I know you told me Hardy was corrupt. But why wouldn't he want facts that could help solve the murders in his own town? Well, like I told you before, as far as the chief is concerned, the matter's closed. I mean, why do you really think he pushed me out, Sherry? It wasn't because Lyman mouthed off to him, and I'm sure as shit it wasn't over a few uppers. The moment he realized that I was actually doing real police work, not just rubber stamping the investigation, he knew. He knew I had to be contained. I'm not sure what he was hoping that he'd find in my car. I mean, hell, maybe someone told him about the drugs, but either way. He had me by the balls at that point. He knows that I'm actually a real cop, not just some clown in a costume that would, that would do the town's bidding. So ordering me off the case wasn't going to fix the issue. Instead, he found a way to hold me hostage. Or hold my ability to feed and clothe myself hostage, anyway. So now, now I'm stuck here with cold, hard evidence. If I try to make a move, he'll see that I'm blackballed right out of the only profession I could ever achieve marginal success at. You're not a coward, Dalton. You wouldn't have made it inside of my front door if I detected a coward vibe from you. You're a balls-out motherfucker. And until you do what you do best, you're not going to get over this. Sure, yeah. Let's go balls to the wall, kiddo. And when I'm knocking on the door with a suitcase in each hand, you gonna take me in? Stop with the victim noise. Shit, man, just because you you don't have a badge anymore doesn't mean you can't keep looking into this. Like, that's kind of exactly what it means. <laughs> to do police work, you have to be a police officer. Yeah. So are all the journalists out there cops? Dalton sat up but didn't speak. He reached for another cigarette, but only let it sit unlit between his fingers. Sherry had spoken a truth that he'd rattled around in his own head quite a few times over the last few weeks. He'd been thinking like a cop for so long that he'd forgotten there were other avenues. As much as he hated the press, he couldn't deny their success in uncovering crimes, oftentimes faster and in better fashion than the police. He had a concealed carry permit and a personal firearm. He'd had almost 20 years of experience working some of the meanest beats in New Orleans. 
And most of all, the hard work was already done. What are you thinking, Dalton? Sherry asked, bringing the former detective out of his mental retreat and back into reality. I'm thinking... You're going to need coffee. Lots of it. If you're going to be any use to me in this, you're going to have to be up to speed on the facts of the case. She smiled, trying to maintain her excitement under the veil of her apathetic exterior. Okay. I'll brew coffee. Just how late are we going to be up? Be glad you work nights, darling. As we're going to be burning some midnight oil. The day after the body of Trent Vickers was found nailed to a wall on Shortcut Road, Dalton and Simon sat parked on the shoulder of Highway 109, looking at the sad and neglected sign, Southeast Louisiana Psychiatric Hospital. This place has gone downhill over the years, and already at the bottom of the hill, halfway buried in a hole, Dalton mumbled to his partner. Oh, come on now, Dalton. I'm sure this is a great place to come and have your brains scrambled. Come for the, the Thorazine, stay for the basket weaving. Can the jokes, this is serious. This hospital is a damn linchpin. Both Trent Vickers and Brian Antoinette spent time here. My guess is they got to know each other behind these very walls. Maybe even drew up the plans for Jeff's killers in there. But both of them are dead now and someone is still out there doing this shit. I mean, Vickers didn't nail himself to that wall. No, he didn't, Simon. And I'll be damned if I'm not going to turn over this rock and look to see what kind of vermin comes scurrying out. Someone here might remember something. Maybe Vickers and Antoinette had a little group of like-minded freaks. Maybe they had a leader. It's worth a look, if nothing else. Yeah, but without a warrant, those doors aren't going to just turn over privileged information about their patients. Which reminds me, why aren't we getting a warrant first? Simon... I'm not sure if you're aware, but my boss wants this done in a certain way. That way is, as I like to call it, the bullshit way. Mandeville is, uh, it's more concerned about sweeping this under the rug than they are about actually solving a case. If we try for a warrant, I'll be denied right after the judge shuts us down. I promise you his first call will be to Chief Hardy, who will then promptly order us to back down. No, if we want to get this done, we have to fly under the radar a bit. Fair enough. But that doesn't help us convince a doctor to just up and violate HIPAA laws, now does it? Dalton chuckled. Right you are. But we aren't going to count on any shrinks to help us out. Doctors are tough to crack in these situations anyway. Too rich for a slob like me to try and bribe, and if I try any old school cop tricks to... To pressure them into talking, they can easily report me for harassment. After all, not like we're trying to get some crackhead to rat on his suppliers or something. No, no, trying to convince a guy who brings home more cash in a month than I do in a year to break the law, uh, it's not an easy mountain to climb. But doctors aren't the only ones with information, you know. Dalton pulled his car into the long and narrow street that led from Highway 190 into the hospital grounds. About a hundred meters away from them was a security building. As they slowly approached, Dalton continued his lecture. No. The guy we're looking for is 
most likely going to be an orderly. Some hospitals call them techs. They're essentially big guys, white coats, come in, hold the loony down until a nurse can inject him full of calm-the-fuck-down juice. My cousin used to do that over at the uh, charity hospital. Job pays shit, usually just a hair above minimum wage. It's dangerous as all hell. The doctors and nurses tend to look down on the techs, too, at least according to my cousin. However, the orderlies, well, they're privy to a lot of information about patients. Really, Dalton? We're going to lean on some dude, barely making enough to live on? That sounds kind of shitty. Not at all. Tricky is find the right one. I'll know when I see him. You want the guy that hates the job, feels underappreciated, and those types. Those types are always in a big hurry to fuck over their employers. If we do this right, they'll practically be leaning on us. Dalton slowed his car to a stop once they reached the security booth. A quick flash of badges followed with the security officer paying extra attention and perhaps a bit of awe at Simon's state police shield. Uh, anything I need to be aware of? The guard asked. Nah. We're just here to follow up on an investigation from in town. We need to talk to a few facility members, Dalton answered. Uh, okay. Just make sure that you're wearing these at all times on hospital grounds, the guard slated as he handed Simon and Dalton plastic laminated cards marked official. Hey, look, Dalton, I'm official. Simon announced with bogus enthusiasm as they drove further into the hospital grounds. Yeah, your official pain in my ass is what you are. Keep your eyes peeled. We need to find the juvenile ward. The sprawling grounds that made up southeast Louisiana psych were clearly in disrepair. The hospital was state-funded, which meant that the funds were short most years. Many of the buildings appeared run down and very much out of date. Dalton followed the posted signs until he felt confident that he'd found the right place. New Hope was the name of the building designated for juvenile patients. Both men observed that at some point in time, someone had spray-painted a line over the word New and altered the sign to state No Hope. From the looks of the structure, a two-story brown brick building surrounded by dying trees and high grass, Dalton felt the rebellious little graffiti was at least partially apt. So, now what? He's going to sit here until some employee walks out and announces to us that they hate their job, that they can't wait to spill beans? Simon asked. Let's go bait the trap. Simon and Dalton entered the New Hope building lobby, which, much like the exterior of the structure, was dreary and depressing. The lobby contained two rows of those old plastic seats that started off uncomfortable and eventually led to symptoms of a broken tailbone. Mounted to the wall was an old television that was playing only static. It had two rabbit ear antennas mounted to the top, and Simon speculated that even when it was new, that television likely played one channel with a heavy coating of static fuzz. The walls were painted a color that Dalton could only describe as battleship gray, and the tiled floor looked as though it had a long-standing grudge with the local mop. Christ, Dalt. They really expect kids to get mentally healthy in a place like this? Well, we've been here for less than two minutes. I already want to call my mom. Relax, cowboy. You won't be here long. I'll admit, though, if this is the part of the building they're willing to show the public, I wouldn't want to see what the off-limits area looked like. A few moments later, they heard movement from behind the frosted glass wall that surrounded what both men assumed 
was the receptionist desk. As they approached, the small window slid to the side, revealing a haggard-looking woman of roughly 50 years of age. She was wearing a set of nurse's scrubs. Can I help you, gentlemen? She asked. Her voice shocked them, as it was in stark contrast with her appearance. She sounded warm and approachable. They took this as a good sign. Yes, ma'am. Uh, my name is Detective Dalton Bradshaw with the Mandeville Police. This is Agent Simon Lyman with the State Police. We're following up on an ongoing case. We were hoping to speak with um, Dr. Joseph Sawyer. Sawyer, according to the notes given to the investigators by medical examiner Marla Darrow, had been the psychiatrist in charge of Brian Antoinette's treatment during his extensive time under the care of the Department of Health and Hospitals. I'm sorry, Detective, but Dr. Sawyer doesn't work here anymore. Dalton feigned disappointment, knowing full well that he wasn't going to get a sit-down with a good doctor. Even if Sawyer was at work, the chances of him sitting down and discussing a patient with two bonehead cops was about as likely as Mara Darrow going on a date with Simon. However, as the seasoned gumshoe looked past the nurse and into the small office behind her station, he knew he was on the right track. Dalton eyed two men sitting at the small table in what was most likely to be the staff break room. Both wore white scrubs. A blonde man looked over his shoulder at the mention of Sawyer, and Dalton even caught a glimpse of him tapping his buddy, a much older guy on the shoulder. They were listening. The blonde looked too young to be a doctor, even an intern. The other guy, as far as Dalton could tell, looked too dumb to pass high school life science, let alone go to medical school. They were orderlies, and Bradshaw could only hope that one of them was disgruntled. Dalton completed setting the trap with his parting words to the nurse. Yeah, it's just too bad, you know. Open a chat with him. Then, turning his attention to Simon, but raising his voice intentionally, Dalton finished with, Okay, let's get back out to Shortcut Road before it gets dark. Both men heard the nurse draw in a quick breath. Word had spread overnight that a man was found nailed to the wall out there. Bradshaw exited the building with Simon, following close behind. Uh, Dalt, I might not have all your years of expert police experience, but I'm pretty sure that's not how you gather information. Sit and wait, my dear dummy, and watch as the case investigates itself. A smug grin appeared on Dalton's face as he led his partner over to a wooden gazebo situated in front of the New Hope building. A sign announced smoking area was nailed to one of the wooden support posts. Dalton sat down on one of the wooden benches and lit a cigarette. Two guys were listening in behind the nurse's station. Their ears perked up as soon as I mentioned Sawyer's name. And I'll bet you that their heads nearly exploded when I tossed out Shortcut Road. I'll bet you they'll be out here any minute now. There's something to say on the matter. After about an hour of no activity, Dalton felt his confidence begin to drop off. Any minute now, huh? Simon asked. Shit. And leave it to my ass to come out on the one day where the assholes that actually like their jobs are on duty. Go easy on yourself. It was a good try. Hey, maybe I can uh, make some calls back to Baton Rouge. Get us that warrant without Hardy having to know. <laughs> if that doesn't work, I can come and commit myself tomorrow to get the inside scoop. I think chronic masturbation to Animal Planet shows is technically a mental disorder. Dalton smiled in spite of their setbacks. Simon was strange, 
and unorthodox. But he was trying to find solutions, and the grizzled veteran cop appreciated that, although he'd never tell his young partner this. Okay, let's go. I need lunch anyway. Really? The Animal Planet masturbation comment gets nothing? You know, I, I, I have to think this shit up, Dalton. It's not like some jackass is sitting around writing my shit one-liners for me, you know? As they prepared to climb into Dalton's car, an unexpected stroke of luck fell upon him. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Gentlemen, uh, officers, beckoned a female voice from behind them. Approaching them was a young woman of perhaps her mid-twenties. A mountain of red curly hair bounced about her head as she trotted eagerly towards Bradshaw's car. She'd tied those locks into a ponytail that also did little to control the mop top. Her face was freckled, but nothing about her was unattractive. Dalton gazed over at Simon and was not surprised to see his partner giving her his full attention. She too was wearing scrubs, but they were a hot pink as opposed to the sterile white worn by the two men Dalton had seen earlier. Hi, she announced when she first arrived. After that, she simply stood and stared, a smile plastered across her face. Dalton began to wonder if she was an employee or a patient. Oh, I'm sorry, I must look like a crazy person, she said, before immediately clamping both hands over her mouth. From behind her locked palms, she squeaked. We're not supposed to say crazy around here. You know, the patience and all. Yeah, uh, can, can we help you? Dalton asked. I think maybe I can help you. Uh, see, I work here. I know, I know, knew Dr. Sawyer pretty well, and, well... Uh, with this Jeff Wood stuff coming back up. Crap. What's your name? Dalton barked. He didn't want to sound harsh or overly commanding, but with a possible lead standing just feet before him, it was hard to stay mellow. Oh, um, if I give you my name, does that mean this is going public? Because I don't want to lose my job. Dalton felt his face grow hot. You approached me, lady. You told me that you might have information on an ongoing murder investigation. That sort of thing requires some information. 
The young woman began to look scared, as though she'd stepped into something that she thought was just a small pothole, but had suddenly found it to be a much deeper pit. Um, my name is Penny Lux, but everyone around here calls me Pinkie Pie. You know, like the, um, like the cartoon. The kids here came up with it, and... What in the living hell is a Pinkie Pie? Dalton mumbled, preparing, no doubt, to recant her original statement and likely retreat back into the building. Luckily, Simon stepped forward and relieved Bradshaw of his daunting task. Well, how about a hoof bump? Simon announced as he approached Penny. Oh, yeah, she giggled as the two bumped their closed fists. My name is Simon Lyman, and nice to meet a fellow lover of all things Equestria. What the fuck am I watching? Dalton mumbled as he lit another cigarette. Ignore him, he's a drag, Simon replied with a wink and a smile. Paying no mind to the annoyed grumble from his aging sidekick, Lyman continued. So, let me guess, uh, Deep Web? Penny's eyes went momentarily wide, as though she were a small child who'd been caught in the act of sneaking out of bed and raiding the fridge at 4am. Relax, Penny, nothing illegal about it. It's just that I have a sinking feeling that you're about to spill a lot of information that most people shouldn't be privy to. Information, perhaps, about Jeff's killers. Information about how Dr. Sawyer might be connected in some way. You know, the kind of info you don't find on the bright web. Oh, it's more than that. I mean, yeah. I found out about Brian Antoinette on some boards. I mean, that picture of him. The one taken by that kid after his mom killed him. It's floating around a few boards. I mean, lots of people talk about it. So, let's talk about it. We already know that Dr. Sawyer was treating him here. Did you know Brian personally? Yes. D do you mind if we go somewhere private? Well, let's do it, Pinkie Pie. The world has gone fucking nuts, Dalton grumbled once again, and the three loaded up into his car and drove off of the hospital campus. Fifteen minutes later, they were all seated in a cozy little corner at a coffee shop in Mandeville's small historic downtown area. On the way there, Penny had informed them that she was the assistant archivist director of the New Hope program. She didn't hate her job, nor was she out to defame the hospital. She did, however, have a suspicious view of Dr. Joseph Sawyer. Brian was such a nice kid. When he first showed up for inpatient treatment, I had high hopes for him. He was a foster kid, as I'm sure that you know, and he had been in and out for treatment for a while. He really wanted to get better. I, I always believed that. Simon, who clearly was better suited to take the lead on this, continued the soft interview. Dalton simply sat back and took notes, partially impressed and disgusted at the same time. He couldn't deny, though, that in a short period of time, Simon had gotten this girl wrapped around his finger. And what do you think changed that? He asked. Sawyer. I mean, it had to be. He had this strange approach. Obviously, I wasn't sitting in there with them during his sessions, but I spent enough time playing checkers or Uno with these kids to usually know all the details of their time on the shrink's couch. What was so unusual about his approach? Well, well, two things, really. Okay, the first was that he treated some of the kids very differently than others. Most of his patients got the standard routine. He would spend about 20 minutes with them each week, and then he'd tweak his medications here and there, and he left most of the heavy lifting to his interns or the, the nursing staff. But then he had this other group, 
the group that Brian was in. He would spend much more time with them. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what he was doing in there, but as time went on, I noticed that the ones in his special group were becoming morbid. Morbid. How so? Well, the stuff that he'd talk to me about when we'd play cards or whatever, it was always about serial killers or, or something. And when Brian first showed up, he didn't care about any of that kind of stuff. He liked to draw. He wanted to be a cartoonist. He had ambitions. A few months with Sawyer, though, and he started focusing on murderers. One murderer in particular. Jeffrey Woods. Yeah, yeah. He'd go on and on about it. He told me that that Jeff Woods was what happened when the pot boiled over. He said that that Jeff the killer was a product of neglect and hate. And, and I get that. I mean, most people agree that his parents fucked him royally in that department. Uh, Brian would never give me any details about his time in Sawyer's office, but he didn't really have to. His sudden fascination did all the telling for him. But he could have gotten that information from anywhere, couldn't he? Uh, from listening to the news, maybe, or hearing other staff talking. What makes you think it came from Sawyer, alone? But he'd... It had just been Brian. I would likely have thought the same way, Simon, but... He had two other patients that stick out. One I'm sure you all know of. Trent Vickers. No shit. Vickers was being treated by Sawyer? Dalton asked, speaking for the first time since they'd sat down. Well, yeah. Mostly outpatient, from what I could tell. This was back in late 2015. I'd only been at the hospital for a little while, and I hadn't really gotten the feel for the place yet. I remember seeing Vickers there, though, and he'd come in and out and go straight to Sawyer's office. It wasn't too long before he started up that Jeff's Killers gang. I'm not saying that Sawyer is behind it. Hell, I mean, he might have nothing to do with it at all. All I know is that both Vickers and Antoinez went batshit overboard for Jeff the Killer while under the care of Sawyer. You said there was another patient that stuck out. Oh yeah, yeah, he's he's the one I'm most worried about. Vickers and Brian, well, they were creepy, sure. But this other one, she was scary. Who's the other girl? Promise to try to help her? Yeah, but we can't help her if you don't tell us who she is. Is she a patient at the hospital? She was. But after Sawyer retired, she was released. Rumor has it that on his last day, he wrote a lengthy recommendation for her transfer to a teen group home. None of us could believe it, but there it was. Do you believe that Sawyer was coaching her into this fascination with Jeff Woods as well? Oh, no, no. Um, She became... Obsessed. She came into the hospital with a disturbing obsession for Jeff the Killer. I, mean, I honestly think she was Sawyer's dream patient. If he was programming some sort of disturbed impulse into patients, she came batteries included. Can you give us her name? Uh, what group home she was moved to? Penny removed a pen and notepad from her purse and began to jot down the information. Dalton and Simon drove Penny back to her car and parked at the hospital. They thanked her for the information, and promised to be in touch soon. As they turned to leave, she stopped them one last time. Simon? Detective Bradshaw? Don't let your guard down around her, okay? She looks sweet and innocent, but... But there's something very dark about this little girl. 
Penny completed this thought by raising up the left side of her pink scrub top and displaying a nasty scar. It's because I told her that Jeff Woods wasn't someone to idolize. She didn't hesitate to attack me with scissors on my desk. She didn't get angry. She didn't build up to anything. She didn't want... She didn't want me to talk bad about her hero. I said Jeff wasn't someone to inspire towards. And the next thing I know, I'm bleeding from my abdomen. She showed no emotion during or after the incident. She just told me, Now you know better. And placed the scissors back at my desk. Dalton and Simon shared a quick glance before climbing back into their car and driving away from Southeast Louisiana Psych for the second time that day. So, yeah. Is that what you kids call flirting nowadays? Dalton asked, as they turned right into Highway 19, pointed in the direction of Mandeville proper. Oh yeah, me and Pinkie Pie? Are we going to connect on Facebook tonight? Gonna make some cupcakes of our own, <laughs> Simon replied. She's a witness, dumbass. Don't ruin this case by... Calm down, Gramps. I'm joking. I mean, if if she weren't involved in an open investigation, uh, who knows, right? Okay. Get back on track. This halfway house, youth healing. It's going to be coming up to your left here in a minute. It's an old plantation home, believe it or not. You're going to have to pull another one of your bait the trap, chain smoke for an hour ploys here too? Not this time, Ace. I happen to know one of the ladies that runs this joint. Simon observed the smug expression from Dalton's face and asked, You know her... how? Uh, let's just say we made a few cupcakes together. Oh, sick man. You just ruined that line forever. <laughs> With extra frosting. Dalton added. Simon refused to comment any further on the matter. A short time later, they were exiting their vehicle and walking up the steps to enter the youth healing group home. The building was old, but well kept. It in fact was a plantation-style home, really more of a mansion. The place had been converted some time back, though, and regardless of Penny's many warnings about the resident they were here to see, it was still a relief to be away from the drab and depressing halls of the state-run mental hospital. Dalton led the way down the first-story hallway towards a closed door marked Staff Only. A few young girls peered down from the second-story banister at the two men entering their place of lodging. Simon waved, but they made no reply. They looked scared and apprehensive. Dalton knocked on the office door and entered before waiting for a reply. A woman who was sitting behind the desk stacked high with papers. She appeared to be concluding a phone call. She looked stressed and tired. However, when she looked up and made eye contact with Bradshaw, her mood seemed to improve a bit. Dalton Bradshaw, what brings you to my little slice of hell? Latoya Hayes, how the fuck you been? Latoya removed her glasses and rubbed her eyes. She glanced at Simon and stood to greet him. I'm Mrs. Hayes, shit, I mean, just call me Latoya. I'm so used to correcting these girls here that want to be on a first name basis with me. I'm Simon, I'm working with Dalton on an investigation here, nice to meet you. No reason to be coy, Simon. Latoya here likely knows more about it than we do. The Nancy Dermott situation is what we're investigating. Great. More Jeff Wood bullshit. Well, I'm dealing with that too right now. 
Our own little resident killer ran away again. I swear. I have no idea how that doctor of her figured that she was fit to come here. Ran away? Fuck it, Latoya. We came here hoping to talk to her. Did you call it in to the MPD yet? I can make a couple calls and speed things up. No need, Dalton. I already know where she went. I see no reason to bother the cops with this. She's run away twice since coming here a few months ago. I was going to have our security guy run out there with me, but since you're here, would you like to provide some backup? Sure, and you can tell us about this girl that has you all worked up while we're at it. They drove towards Fairmont Drive, former neighborhood of both Jeffrey Woods and Jane Arkansas. This little girl is truly disturbed, so when we get there, handle this softly, Latoya instructed. Well, tell us about her. Dalton requested. She came to us not too long ago, like I said, on doctor recommendations. She's utterly obsessed with Jeffrey Woods. Actually, let me correct myself. She's so obsessed with Jeffrey Woods, I firmly believe that she's going to kill someone, Dalton. I've been in contact with the hospital. Practically begged them to come and take her back. The other girls are terrified of her. Problem is... Her doctor retired, and it's a pain in the ass to get them to come out here and evaluate her. Why are they afraid of her? Simon asked. On her first night at the youth healing, she sent one of our residents to the emergency room. It started off as typically does for a new face. She shows up, and Diane Austin, the girl she sent to the hospital, started verbally hazing her a bit. You try to discourage it, but kids will be kids no matter what. And anyway, nothing happened at first. All the girls go to bed... I start thinking it was all business as usual, and then I get a call from the night shift. Turns out, they started hearing screaming in the middle of the night. The security guards go up and find our new resident has Danielle tied down to her bed. Now at first, that looks like that was the extent of it. But then, they turn on the lights. I've never seen a grown man so shaken up in my life. Our new girl had broken into our activities room at some point after lights out, and gotten a hold of two knitting needles. Knitting is, well, it used to be one of our therapeutic techniques. The guard sees one of the needles buried halfway into Daniel's side. The girl was in the process of driving the second one in when the guards pulled her away. Christ. Knitting needles. Yeah. She stuck the girl in such a way that it missed all of her vital organs. People kept telling Danielle that she got lucky, but I don't think luck had a damn thing to do with it. I think that little psycho knew what she was doing. Dalton made a quick sign of the cross without realizing he was even doing so. The toy continued. What was really scary about it, though? She showed no emotion at all. According to the guard, she was just as calm and collected as you could want. She kept telling Diane, um, and now you know better, that she was torturing her, like some teacher correcting a child in class. What happened after that? Well... Little Psycho got her own room, but I don't believe that was what she was after. I think she just liked watching someone suffer. It gets worse, though. There used to be this big alley cat that would come around the back of the house in the evenings. It usually ran away if any of the girls tried to approach it. However, Little Psycho managed to befriend the thing. For a couple days, we thought she was turning over a new leaf. She'd feed the cat every night and sit out there and pet it. You want to guess what I found out a few days later? Simon spoke up. I'm not sure I want to at this point. Tell us, Dalton answered. She was grinding up glass and putting it in the cat food. I personally caught her in the act. 
She'd break a bottle, roll over the glass with a rolling pin from the kitchen until it was practically dust, then she'd sprinkle a little bit in the food. I mean, if she wanted to kill that cat, she could have whenever she wanted. She could have just poured rat poison into the food, for that matter. But instead, she chose a slow and nasty way. She told me later when I sat down and asked her why she'd do such a thing that she wanted to watch it transform. I thought that was a strange choice of words. And when I pushed for more, she told me that she wanted to watch it go from healthy to sick to dead. That gave me chills. And Dalton, you know I don't get chills easily. Latoya pulled her car over to the shoulder, across the street from the burnt-out remains of Jeffrey Woods' former home. I went out and caught that cat, took it to a vet. I never had the heart to call and find out if it survived or not. Little Psycho told me that they just put it to sleep anyway. What, what kind of little girl thinks that way? Okay, I must be missing something. If she stabbed a girl, how the hell is she not in jail? Or, or back at the mental hospital, Simon demanded. Like I said, her doctor is retired, so all she has right now is me, her caseworker. In order to have her committed back into Southeast Louisiana psych, I have to get a judge to bless off on the recommendation. So far, they keep giving me the runaround. We keep her as separated from the other kids as possible. We have her pretty much under constant watch. But as you can see, it doesn't always work. As they continued to talk, Latoya led the men past the vacant lot where the Woods' family home once stood, and into the wooded lot behind the property. There's a little shack out there. If you listen to Monica Davenport's audio release of Jeff's interview, you might remember him mentioning the place. A little hunter's shack or something from way back when. Oh yeah, Jeff mentioned that he and his brother found it on the day they encountered Randy Hayden, and his friends for the first time, Simon replied his voice sounding distant and wandering. So what's this little girl's story, Latoya? Besides her being a psychopath for stabbing her roommates and poisoning stray cats. Oh yeah, well, if you're expecting some long, drawn-out story where she gets a tragic beginning based around events out of her control, forcing her to forge her mind into a new place in order to accommodate her chaotic surroundings, then you're in the wrong chapter. Because no, she has no such sad past. She's just sick and sadistic. She displays all the typical sociopathic behaviors, almost textbook, really. According to her father, she was initially sent to see a psychiatrist due to violent outbursts towards her brother. She would stab his hand with a fork during meals, trap him when he was walking down steps, and even once dumped hot grease from her kitchen over the top of the shower curtain while he was washing. Luckily, most of it missed him, but he got some nasty burns on his ankles from the splash. This concerned her parents, but but didn't cause them to lose all hope. When they asked her why she did these things, she'd tell them that it was just a joke or something. They didn't become scared until she raised the stakes. Turns out she was caught mixing Drano into his drink one day. Apparently, he liked a certain brand of soda, so no one else really touched it. She put just enough of the chemical to make him sick. By the end of it, when she was finally taken over to New Hope, they'd sent the brother away for his own protection. They couldn't keep pets because she would either torture or kill them, and they had to put locks on all their cabinets to keep her from getting into more chemicals. Her dad painted a picture of a girl who had no idea where the lines fell between right and wrong. She seemed incapable of guilt or remorse. Even through all of that, though, her parents tried to keep her from being committed. 
We had hoped that her weekly visits with the shrink could do the trick. But you know what they say. Hope in one hand. Shit in the other. And tell me which one weighs more. In late 2015, she apparently fell into some sort of obsession with Jeffrey Woods. Well, his crimes, at least. It became too much for her family to handle when she attempted to carve a scar up the side of her brother's face. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, Dalton mumbled absently, like unaware he was even doing so. Do you, did you ever meet her doctor? Simon asked. Sawyer? No, only read his notes. From the files we received on Little Psycho, she should have been an ideal resident. Sawyer gave her a great review. Maybe he was just trying to pad his resume, though since one of his patients did commit suicide in the Mandeville police station just a few years back. Oh, I remember that. He attacked Drake Arkansas's daughter out on Shortcut Road. She was under the care of Sawyer as well. Another Looney Tunes kid dressed up as Jeff Woods. Also, a patient of Sawyer's. Shit, Simon. I believe we've got probable cause. Maybe after this we go pay the good doctor a visit at home. The Toya cut him off. There's the place, she informed them pointing at an ancient-looking wooden structure that was long past its expiration date. Listen, guys. This little girl is dangerous, okay? Don't let the fact that she's only 13 years old trick you into thinking that she's harmless. Remember when I said she has psychopathic tendencies? One of those is that she can be very convincing when she wants someone to trust her. She can be just as sweet as you want until you say something that upsets her. All three adults could hear a soft female voice echoing from the small shack. It sounded as though she was having a tea party with some imaginary friends or something. As they closed in, Latoya lowered her voice to a whisper. She knows me. Let me go in first and open a conversation. Last time we had to come out and get her, she tried to take one of the security guard's eyes out. So hopefully, what little rapport I have been able to build with her will be enough. Simon and Dalton nodded as Latoya called out to the occupant of the shack. Nina? It's Miss Hayes. Come to pick you up. I'm coming in, okay? The little voice from within the shack suddenly stopped, and everything went silent as they prepared to enter the building. Nina Hopkins stood inside the small shack and smiled warmly as Latoya and her companions entered. Hello, Miss Hayes, she spoke as the caseworker walked in. Hello, Nina. Why did you run away again? Didn't we talk this through last time? He used to come here. Did you know that? Nina asked. Who? Jeff. Okay, then. Well, it's time for us to go back to the house. As Latoya spoke, Dalton and Simon slowly stepped around the woman and fully entered the shack. They were careful to try and appear non-threatening. Who are these people, Miss Hayes? Two really good friends of mine. This is Mr. Dalton, and this is Mr. Lyman. They wanted to come out and help me search for you, like a fun game of hide-and-seek. Fun game, Mrs. Hayes? Don't lie to me. You brought them because you're afraid I'll hurt you. I don't blame you. No, why would you want to hurt anyone, Nina? I don't know, Mrs. Hayes. Maybe because it gets the hate out of me. That's what Jeff used it for. He was just so filled with hate, but he shared it with others. I could share mine with you too. Come over here and maybe I'll share it with you right now. Hayes 
was at a momentary loss for words. Nina hadn't threatened her directly until now, but she wasn't sure how to respond. During her tenure in counseling wayward youths, she'd been threatened many times, however, those threats always came from a vacant place of false bravado, all bang and no substance. With Nina, she feared the threats could easily become actionable. Simon stepped forward, his hands held out in a gesture of goodwill, and took the responsibility of dealing with the disturbed young girl momentarily off Latoya's shoulders. So, you're a big Jeff the Killer fan, he began, being careful to refer to the serial killer by his media name as opposed to his actual. So am I. I study Jeff the Killer. That's why I'm down here in Mandeville. Yeah, right, she replied flatly. Seriously, check it out. This shack, the reason why you're here. This is where Jeff and Lou came on the day of the fight in front of the friendly video. That's why you like this place. Am I right? Stupid. Jeff the Killer never came to this place on the day of the fight. Jeff Woods did. No. Jeff the Killer came here after he transformed. Dalton raised an eyebrow. The girl could be crazy, sure. But at the same time, if she had some sort of knowledge of where Jeff Woods went to hide after his final murders, then this could be the first major lead in a long time. He had to fight the urge to remain silent and let Simon continue with his soft, officer-friendly approach. Simon also took note of this interesting tidbit of information, but decided it was best to stay on track. Fair enough, Nina. I may not be on your level of knowledge, but I'd sure like your help in getting there. Bonding. Very cute, Mr. Lyman. Using my first name in an attempt to humanize yourself to me? Expressing a shared interest in an attempt to connect with me? My doctor told me all about these tricks. Listen. I understand where you're coming from. I share an interest in these types of things, too, and I understand that it can sometimes make people afraid of you, Nina. But I, I don't think you're someone to be afraid of, though. What I see is a very intelligent young woman who just needs to find someone to talk to about these things that she likes. We could talk about Jeff the Killer all day if you want to. It's one of my favorite topics. Nina Hopkins smiled, and for just a moment... The child standing before Simon looked like any other young teenage girl from the suburbs. She was a small child, even for her age, and her face had the sharp features of high intellect. In that moment, she could have just been some ninth grade honors kid with a purple streak in her hair because of her love of art. Okay, Mr. Lyman, maybe I'm being mean for no reason. I'm sorry. It's okay. And you can call me Simon if you like. Or I can call you Miss Hopkins if you like. Nina shuffled her feet for a moment. And Dalton thought, for a moment, she was bluffing. He thought to himself, Simon's actually pulling this off. My God, he must be the fucking wacko whisperer. Nina's fine. You know, my parents kicked me out and had me locked up in a psych ward. They said I'm a monster. The people at the hospital were all mean to me except for my doctor. He was nice. Like you, Simon. Miss Hayes tries, but I think she hates me too. She wants to send me back to the hospital. And with my doctor gone, I'll be all alone there. With the mean people. Nina began to tear up. 
Simon knelt down and carefully edged a bit closer. It's all right. No one here thinks you're a monster. We want to help you, and we really want you to help us. Do you think we can work together? Can we really talk about Jeff the Killer? Only my doctor used to talk to me about him, and he knew a lot. Of course we can. Like I said, I'm a regular old fanboy when it comes to Jeff. Nina held her hand out to Simon. The investigator, intent on maintaining and hopefully improving his connection with her, gave his hand without hesitation. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He didn't want to spoil the rapport by appearing apprehensive. Can I show you something? It has to do with Jeff. I made these myself when I came out here. Absolutely. Nina reached down with her free hand and produced a small flashlight. The back half of the shack had been shrouded in darkness, and the only source of light to enter was through the open door. She clicked on the light and aimed it towards the rear wall. In that moment... Simon, Dalton, and LaToya had to fight the urge to not turn their heads from what the darkness had been hiding. Just like real life, Nina shouted with glee as the light exposed. Three dead cats nailed to the inner wall of the building. I found them in the shack when I came in here today, and I just knew they'd be perfect. Maybe Jeff the Killer left them in here for me. They were in a box, and by the time they realized I was here and tried to run, I had already shut the door. Look! One of them is like Keith, and the other one is like Troy. Simon attempted to back up, but Nina held firmly on his hand. He was trying to fight the urge to turn and run, as he didn't want to upset any potential balance. But the gore scene on the wall was hard to stand near. Nina continued to smile and brag about her work. The third cat, though. I don't know, Simon. Maybe that one could be you. Three things happened very quickly in the next second. Nina Hopkins released the flashlight and produced a knife from behind her back, likely tucked into her belt or perhaps her back pocket. Nina raised the knife, taking aim at Simon. Then, Nina dropped the knife and was suddenly crashing into the wall behind her. Simon looked up and saw Dalton standing over him. Dalton had wasted no time moving faster than one would think that he possibly could when he saw the shift in Nina's demeanor. He knew the game. She'd played to Simon's humanity and lured him in. When he saw her hand reaching around her back, he'd sprung into action. He'd turned and driven a shoulder into Nina, a move that would do minimal damage to the child, but would strike with enough mass to ensure someone of her height and weight would be taken off her feet. The knife fell to the floor and Simon quickly grabbed it up before standing. Nina carefully rose to her feet, and her face displayed a look of shock mixed with rage. 
Good shit, Dalton. That was close, Simon stated. Close? She's fucking 13 and can't weigh more than 85 pounds. If there's some pocket of the universe where she's a threat to two fucking adults. Cops, for that matter. Well, I mean, she had the element of surprise on me and you. You see, and, uh... Save it. Had enough of this shit today, Dalton snarled. Nina was staring him down. Look on his face no longer contained any traces of the shock or surprise, nor did she resemble that innocent, smiling girl that had fooled Simon. What Dalton was staring at now was a psychotic child who'd just been bested. She was furious. She wanted to lash out. Dalton decided that it was time to fight fire with fire. Dalton had tried to fight her fire with water, using a friendly approach to combat her hatred. Dalton had no interest in being officer-friendly. When the little girl attempted to step forward, he quickly advanced one step forward and began speaking directly to her. I think in all fairness, Nina, I should explain to you exactly what it is that I do. For instance, if you try to grab that knife again, or if you try any other bullshit with us, or even threaten Miss Hayes again, I'll take a walk over your little group home, and I'll crack your fucking head wide open in front of everybody. And just about the time that I'm coming out of jail, hopefully, you'll be coming out of your coma, and guess what? I'll split your fucking head open again, because I'm fucking stupid. I don't give a fuck about jail. That's my business. That's what I do. Nina stood in momentary silence. The look of shock and awe now returning, taking over and replacing the rage. Dalton Bradshaw happened to be a Martin Scorsese fanatic. He'd probably watched Goodfellas and Casino two dozen times over. He could quote every line, and found that Joe Pesci's line worked wonders, so long as the perp on the receiving end didn't realize that the tough guy cop was simply quoting a gangster movie. Now he just had to wait and see if Nina Hopkins was a fan of 90s crime dramas. After several long and intense moments, she spoke. You're the coolest adult I've ever met, was all she said. I want you to tell me about Dr. Sawyer. Okay, but only you. Deal. If you can give me some useful information, I'll ignore the three animals you mutilated out here today, and I'm pretty sure Simon can forgive and forget about the fact you tried to stab him. I wasn't really going to stab him. I just wanted to scare him. My doctor said scaring can do more damage than killing because it infects the mind. The three adults escorted Nina back to their vehicle. She climbed into the back seat and Dalton shut the door, giving him time to talk privately with Simon and Latoya. Well, Dalton, I see you're still using the casino line. One day someone is going to catch on to that, Latoya taunted. Her voice was a little bit shaky, but she was coming back to reality. Well, if that ever happens, hopefully they'll appreciate my fine taste in movies. Simon asked, What about Nina? I mean, we can't let her go back to the youth home. She's going to eventually kill someone. We all know it. She needs to be locked up. Like I said, the judge is playing games with that. I don't know why, but it's almost like... Like he wants her out of the hospital. Now, you don't think... That's this judge. Now, this judge and Sawyer might be connected? I don't think that. But that's neither here nor there at this moment. I'm going to make some calls, get Nina taken to an unofficial custody for a few nights. You need a break from her. I got some friends over at St. Tamarney's Juvenile Detention Center. They had a psych unit there. Nina could have a few days to cool down while we try and get some paperwork pushed to get her out of your program. Back where she belongs. If you end up building a case against Sawyer, you think Nina will actually testify against him? Hayes asked. If she sees him, I doubt it. 
from everything we've learned today, it seems as though Sawyer had some sort of manipulative technique, if he's even involved in this. If it is that, though, she likely won't speak against him face to face. Any usable testimony would likely have to be gathered on video and presented as such in court. Suddenly, the car horn blared directly behind them, causing them all to jump a bit. Dalton looked over and saw Nina laughing as she leaned back into the rear seat. Come on, Dalton. If you want to talk, let's go. I'm hungry, she shouted. So Dalton took Nina to her restaurant of choice, which happened to be Cece's Pizza. Simon and Latoya waited in the car outside. Dalton spent over an hour chatting with her. As he watched her consume slice after slice of pizza, laughing and joking and acting like any normal child, he realized how dangerous this situation had become. This girl could be his niece, or some Girl Scout selling cookies. She could walk amongst people and be seen as the least threatening human being in the world. She could be polite and charming. He couldn't even fault Simon for falling into her trap back in the shed. Yet, he also knew that she was completely maniacal, had witnessed it with his own eyes. If she was the product of this Dr. Sawyer, and had the same doctor produced Brian Antoine and Trent Vickers, he shuddered at the thought of how many others could be walking about, ticking away towards madness and violence. His heart also broke just a little for Nina Hopkins. Between chilling examples of what she recalled from her time with Sawyer, a normal girl would appear. She'd notice some other girl's shoes or hairstyle and make some completely average comment. Then it was right back to her strange retellings of her times in Sawyer's office. When he and Nina finally returned to the car, he'd honestly gotten very little real information out of her. There were a few cryptic tidbits that he'd need to explore more, but in reality, he wasn't sure if her information was even worth the price of the pizza. Dalton received a call from one of his friends at the juvenile detention center, and they agreed to keep Nina in segregation off the books for a few days. Dalton's friend on the phone explained, Look, Bradshaw, we can't keep her here for more than a few days. We'll have to fudge the reports, list her as a runaway that we found and brought in. We'll have to go with a Jane Doe approach, but you better make sure your friend from the youth healing place comes to pick her up. Three days, got it. We're cops after all, Dalton. It's not like we can just look at a kid and sentence him to prison. If you really want her locked up, you're going to have to go through the right channels. Got it, thanks, Dalton answered and hung up. Did you arrange the thing? Latoya asked, deliberately avoiding spilling the beans. However, Nina spoke up for him. It's okay, Miss Hayes. Dalton already told me that I have to take a few days away from the youth healing. Christ, Dalton. You are something when you put your mind to it, she commented. Several hours later, as the sun began to set on Mandeville once again, Dalton, Simon, and Latoya stood outside of the youth healing building. Nina had been safely deposited in the custody of the parish psych ward, and the relief on Hayes' face was palpable. I really want to just leave her out there, Latoya stated. Don't. I need all the favors I can get, and if we fuck the parish on this, then a lot of people get in trouble. We had to falsify some official paperwork to get her out there, so enjoy your long weekend, but don't screw me on this, please. Look. Simon said. I'll put in some calls to the state. Now, hopefully, in the next few days, we can get her transferred somewhere. 
Latoya Hayes stepped back and held her hand out to both men, who all joined up forming a triangle of humanity. Both of you, thank you for everything today. This Dr. Sawyer? Shit. Could he really be involved with these crazy kids? I hope not. Nina is the only one still alive that we know of, so really, Latoya, thank you. She might be the linchpin to building a case here. What all did she tell you, Dalton? Honestly, it was a lot of gibberish. She might still be playing games with us. I mean, she went from homicidal kid with cats nailed to the wall to wanting to be my best friend all because of a damn movie quote. Whole thing could be a setup. But we're gonna keep digging, and we'll let you know, okay? Latoya gave Simon a hug goodbye. The hug she gave Dalton came with a soft kiss to the corner of his mouth. The two officers loaded up into Dalton's car and back out onto the street. Okay, Dalton, no more waiting. I can't take it. What did she reveal about Sawyer? I got it all right here, Dalton exclaimed, holding up his tape recorder. Well then, your place or mine, handsome? You got liquor? No, I'm in a tiny motel room. Then I guess it's my place. From the audio-recorded interview conducted by Mandeville Police Department Detective Dalton Bradshaw with Nina Hopkins. Okay, Nina. Let's just start by... Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we have some technical difficulties. Mr. Dalton had to scratch his butt. Give me back the recorder. No way. This is the Nina Show, and it's all Nina all the time. Fuck it. Okay, Nina. Briefly tell me a bit about yourself. Well, I am 13, a Sagittarius, and my favorite movie is that great comedy starring Marlon Wayans, where they're really funny and funny stuff happens to all these people and they all have hilarious endings. That describes just about all the Marlon Wayne movies. Which one's your favorite? Duh, the funniest one. Requiem for a Dream. Moving on. We already know how you ended up under the care of Dr. Sawyer, but how did he condition you into one of his... Oh no, you've got part of that all wrong. You're comparing me to Trent Vickers or Brian Antoine. You're looking at this all wrong. I was already obsessed with Jeff the Killer before I even met Dr. Sawyer. He just told me to run with it. And the others, Vickers, Antoine, are they already fans of Jeff? Not that I know of. I think with them, Sawyer helped them along a bit. I know he gave Vickers the idea of Jeff's killers. Do you consider yourself one of Jeff's killers? Nope, not me. They're lame. Oh, look at us. Everyone makes fun of me, so I like Jeff. Oh, look at me. Jeff is like an angel because he screwed the boys. So, what is the basis for your appreciation of Jeff? He stabbed up some fools because he got tired of fighting the hate. That's why. That's really it? That's why you admire him? Yeah. Look, I don't know why I'm like the way I am. I get that I messed up, trying to poison my brother, killing his cats, sticking that Diane girl with sewing needles. I know all that stuff's really messed up. Then why do it? I don't know. No one ever knows. All the doctors, the ones before Sawyer, they'd always tell me to fight it. My parents told me to fight it. My teachers told me, everyone, I'd fight it. And it would hurt so bad, like, like weird hunger pains, I guess. I'd sit there, I'd watch my brother chew his food with his open mouth. I'd listen to some kid in my class laugh at stupid jokes. I'd watch some idiot do some 
something idiotic. And I would just want to hurt them so bad that they'd never do it again. And finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. I'm Sawyer. Sawyer, he knew all of this and he told you to go with it. Yep. He said that I'd be no good hanging out with Vickers and his gang of Jeff's fangirls out in the shortcut road. He said I'd likely lose my control if I was around them for too long. Do you still have something to do? I mean, is there something coming that you are supposed to be a part of? Not that I'm aware. <laughs> Before he retired, he promised he'd get me out of the psych ward and into the group home. He told me that after that, I should follow my heart. Honestly, I think he got mad because his red-green-blue game didn't work on me. What's that? What's red-blue-green? Well, he had me in his office, and he told me that he was going to hypnotize me. I never fell asleep, though. Couldn't focus enough. Uh, I was trying, though. I heard him repeat, red, green, blue, over and over again. I know he did the same thing with Vickers and Antoine, but I guess since they're both dead, we'll never know. He didn't give you any other information that would explain the colors or what they meant? Nope. Do you know why he retired? I think he was getting really sick. I'm not really sure, but he seemed to get skinnier, and on some days, he looked really sleepy. So Sawyer is retired, and Vickers and Antoine are both dead. This all really over, Nina, or is there more to come? <laughs> oh, there's a lot more to come. Vickers and Antoine were not the only ones. I don't know how many more for sure, but I know there's more. The, the ones out at Shortcut Road. Most of them, not really involved. Nope. Some of the most important ones, they were walking among you every day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, what are they planning, Nina? Tell me. Please. I don't know. Really, once Sawyer realized he couldn't do the red, green, blue trick on me, he sort of stopped focusing on me. He, he helped me get out of the psych ward because I promised to keep a secret. And then he lied to me anyway. What did he lie to you about? He promised me that if I were to help, he'd let me meet him. Who? Who else? Jeff the Killer. Jeff the Killer, as in, as in the real Jeffrey Woods. That's impossible, you know, Nina. I mean, the, the real Jeff's been missing for four years. There's a good chance that he's long gone, you know, dead. And if he is alive, I'm sure he's long gone from Mandeville, Louisiana. Hell, likely the South in general. Wrong, Mr. Dalton. Think about it. The night that Jeff left home, he had no money. He had no car. He had no friends to reach out to. 
Last thing we know about him, he killed Keith and Troy. He didn't steal anything from their homes, didn't run off of their car with enough cash to buy a plane ticket out of the country. He was alone. You mentioned before that he had visited that shack in the woods after his transformation. He did. It had running water and shelter from the weather. It, it makes sense that he'd go there, don't you think? Okay. Assuming that he's alive. Are you saying that Sawyer has him? No. It's part of the reason that he had to break his promise. Who has him, then? Dr. Sawyer. You just told me Dr. Sawyer doesn't have him. He doesn't. That's why he broke the promise. Then who has him? Dr. Sawyer. That doesn't make sense. You don't make sense. Back at Dalton's apartment, Simon rewound and played the final lines of the interview several times. Though I'm going to auto-tune that last part and put it on YouTube. A middle-aged cop arguing back and forth in a chain restaurant with a 13-year-old girl. <laughs> Too damn funny. She just started screeching at the end there. I guess she got frustrated with the questions or something and just broke down. We had to end it. People were staring. So, we definitely have enough to get a warrant for Sawyer. I'm going to put that call into Baton Rouge tomorrow and get the ball rolling. Since we're going after a doctor, I want to make sure that I get an all-inclusive warrant so we can dig into everything. Good man. What are your thoughts on Nina's belief in Jeffrey Woods still being alive? Simon scratched his chin for a moment and thought it over. Well, it's not technically impossible that he could be alive, true. However, we've been going at this case from the state level pretty hard for several years. And if there is any evidence that Jeff is alive, well, sure as hell hasn't found its way onto my desk. Truthfully, I think Sawyer has just told Nina what she wants to know in that regard. And think about it. The girl's obsessed about Jeffrey Woods. Sawyer wants to tap into that obsession. So, of course, he's going to tell her that Woods is not only alive but also available for an autograph signing. It's classic manipulation. I don't know. Now, you're probably right, but Simon interrupted. But yes, we're going to look into her statement. I mean, I am the agency's leading expert on Jeff. <laughs> we're going to follow up. I just want to handle this nice and linear, Dalton. Let's focus on Sawyer first, then we can worry about the next leg of the journey. Dalton took a thirsty gulp of beer and a long drag of his cigarette and smiled. Agreed. We've earned our pay for today anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm going to head back to Baton Rouge for a couple of days, I think. I want to go and request the warrant in person instead of over the phone. Plus, you look like you could use a day or two to yourself. Oh, well. You just are full of good ideas today, aren't you? I suppose there isn't much to be done between now and then. Seems like the best time to get rest. Once that warrant comes down, we're going to be busy anyway. Hey, Dalton, you never did tell me why you left the NOPD. Hey, remember, you said that you'd tell me if we ended up working together for a while. Well, it's been officially one while, and I think I'd like to cash in on that promise. Dalton's hands fell instinctively to his sides. His hand traced upward along the left side of his torso. Simon didn't notice or chose not to ask. Tell you what, after we bust Sawyer... I'll take you out for a few beers and tell you all about it, okay? Okay. The two men shook hands, and Sawyer left, pointing his car towards Baton Rouge. Dalton would see him in two days, hopefully with a warrant in hand. He was excited about this case, excited in a way that the old cop hadn't been about his work in a long time. 
Not since his early days as a patrol officer in the French Quarter had he felt so alive to be conducting actual police work. So much of his professional life since coming to Mandeville had been simple paper-pushing and small-town nonsense. He'd forgotten what cracking the real case actually felt like. He reached for a third beer, held the unopened bottle in his hand for a moment, and then decided to put it away. Dalton decided that he would rather spend the evening studying up on the evidence and leads instead of getting drunk. He still couldn't decide if Nina Hopkins was a reliable witness or just a little girl playing stupid games. He'd learn more if he was confident of that, but in the meantime, he wanted to stay sharp and focus on the situation before him. That night, Dalton slept well for the first time in months. The last morning, he awoke and was amazed at how refreshing it felt to not be greeted by a hangover first thing. He spent his day inside, studying over his notes and drawing up a plan for his next move. He did what limited research he could from home. The MPD database had nothing of interest in Dr. Sawyer. However, Google had a bit more to say. From the Sam Houston University official news publication, The Houstorian, July 10th, 1974. Controversial professor of psychiatry, Dr. Joseph Sawyer, has lost a promising grant for his eyebrow-raising white room study that he proposed last year. Details about his study are still vague as the project failed to gain headway once the grant was denied. However, sources close to the professor tell us that Sawyer was seeking money to experiment on the effects of what he calls deep human submergence. While little information is available, it is noteworthy and a bit hair-raising to note that Sawyer was apparently fascinated by the effects of leaving a human child without direct interaction or stimulus to study possible personality outcomes and overall psychological development. Others close to Sawyer have indicated that the doctor has long experienced fascination and how a human child would develop if deprived of all interaction with outside stimuli until the age of reason. Further rumors abound that Sawyer was in fact seeking volunteers, potentially parents in need of money to allow their children to partake in his study. At this time, Sawyer had stated his intention to resign from teaching at Sam Houston and expressed that he was likely returning to practicing psychiatric medicine. Fucking guy was trying to MK Ultra people out there, Dalton mumbled to himself. That evening, Bradshaw skipped drinking and decided to go to bed early. Tomorrow would be his last day off before Simon returned, and they got back to work. He was hoping to make the most out of his free time. He watched some television until around 11 p.m., before retiring to the tiny back bedroom of his apartment. Several hours later, he was awoken. Tap, 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 tap. He heard the soft rapping on his wall, but chose to ignore it. Tap, 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 tap. He cracked his eyes slightly. The small room was very dark. The window above his bed let in a small amount of dull white light from the street lights outside. He closed his eyes, determined that the annoyance was simply the pipes or the walls or any other thing that was of no concern to a tired police officer. Tap, 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 tap. This time the knocking was louder. It was far too deliberate and in rhythm to be anything other than the product of a human fist. He opened his eyes and sat up on his elbows. 
The tapping returned again, and this time Dalton could trace the source. The noise was coming from the neighboring apartment, which shared a bedroom wall with Dalton. The sounds were coming from the closet, which gave him a quick case of the shivers. The noise didn't unnerve him so much because they were coming from the closet. That little nook was far too small to house any intruder, and even in the dim light, he could see that his open closet was vacant. Now, what spooked the detective was the fact that someone was on the other side, sitting in their closet, in the dark, tapping on the wall and possibly waiting for a reaction. This realization became a bit creepier when Dalton's tired mind factored in that the neighboring apartment was vacant. Had been for months. Once his brain added this in with all the crazy shit he'd been dealing with ever since being dispatched out to Nancy Dermott's home to inspect a corpse on her sofa, suddenly Dalton was no longer interested in rolling over and going back to sleep. The tapping came again. He slowly began to sit up and observed with a growing apprehension that each time he would move, the tapping would pop in rhythm to his motion. If he stretched his arm, a tapping would come at the end. To test this, Dalton pulled and removed the blanket from over his body, and further freaked out as the tapping grew faster if he peeled back the covers quickly, and would dramatically slow down if he reduced the speed of his arm. Once he let the blanket drop from his hand at the end of the bed, a quick tap accompanied the bedding as it fell to the mattress. Fuck this, he groaned and reached for his lamp. The knocking from within the closet followed his arm and gave a final rap as he turned the small switch within the lampshade. Nothing. No light. No relief from the darkness. Dalton wasted no further time reaching into the small space between his headboard and wall. As his hand plunged into the darkness, he fathomed some phantom hand grasping his wrist and felt the urge to move faster. Don't let this fuck with your head, he thought. A slight relief washed over him. His hand landed on what he was looking for. The spare pistol that he had in easy grabbing range at night. The tapping continued to accompany the man as he carefully climbed out of bed and stood. Reaching into his nightstand, he retrieved his cigarette lighter and stuck up the flame. A dim glow surrounded Dalton as he peered into his open closet. Whatever was on the other side had resumed the steady tapping. Dalton crouched down and peered into the closet. No sign of feet poking out from below the row of clothing. He turned and looked about the tiny bedroom and could tell immediately that he was at least alone on his side of the wall. Perhaps giving in to the childhood fears that no one could ever outgrow, he checked under his bed as well. Nothing down there but dust and bunnies. Maybe I'm letting this shit get to my head, he thought. The tapping came again, and Dalton began to allow himself to believe that perhaps a burnt-out light bulb and an annoying asshole on the other side of the wall wasn't anything to fire bullets over. The tapping repeated again, and this time Dalton reached into his closet and tapped back. The mystery person on the other side of the wall replied by mimicking Dalton's two knocks, only much softer. He reached in and tapped three times, and received three very faint taps in reply. Releasing a small chuckle, Dalton gave one very long, slight tap once more and waited for a response. He leaned in, attending to perhaps voice an actual greeting, hoping that maybe he got new neighbors and just didn't know it yet. He moved his head slowly to the wall when POW POW POW! The tapping had been replaced by aggressive slamming, as if the person on the other side was kicking the wall now. Dalton, Dalton jumped back from the closet and stood up furious and shaken as his heart raced inside of his chest. Fuck you, pal, he shouted. 
when suddenly the slamming was no longer in his closet, but at his bedroom door. Shit! Thalden gasped between closed teeth. Someone was inside his apartment, separated from him only by the cheap, hollow, pressboard door of his bedroom. Without hesitation, he reached up and ripped the blinds down from his bedroom window, increasing the light in the room. He knew he had to try for the light switch on his wall, but the switch was by the door, and the pounding was continuing. Dalton felt his legs freeze in place, ignoring his commands to move. He dug deep and forced his feet forward. With each step, it seemed as though the banging from the other side of the door grew louder, as if whatever was over there knew he was creeping inch by inch closer to the door. Almost, he whispered, and when his fingers finally touched the light switch and gave an upward flip, he felt his heart sink further as no lights came on. Dalton's mind tried to focus. The scenario reminded him of being a child far too much to bring anything other than shame to the man. He felt like a scared child sitting in the dark room because some monster was trying to get to him. He hated that feeling. Remembering back, Dalton recalled the little Irish song his mother had taught him when he was a child. She told him that it was a song to bring on courage and that he could find strength within its words. She told him if he were to focus on the words, he would be too busy to think about whatever was frightening him at the time. With no other option on the table, he began to silently lip the lyrics that had been stuck with him since his youth. Let Bacchus' sons be not dismayed, but with me each jovial blade. Come booze and sing and lend your aid to help me with the chorus. He was much closer now, his hand almost on the doorknob. His pistol was ready, his heart was hammering, and his nerves were on fire. Instead of spa, we drink down ale and pay the reckoning on the nail. For debt no man shall go to jail, from Garrowin in glory. Dalton gripped the knob and gently began to turn. The knocking had ceased, but the man could still feel the presence on the other side, like a vile heat. We are the boys who take delight in smashing the limerick lamps with lighting, though the streets like sportsters fighting and tearing all before us. Almost there, he turned the knob and simply had to pull the door open. Instead of spa, we'll drink the ale and pay the reckoning on the nail. For debt, no man shall go to jail from Garwin. One final breath, Dalton shouted, In glory! Through the door open. No one was there. Riding the adrenaline, he charged into the hallway, gun aimed into the dim chasm before him. The hallway connected to the living room, which featured large windows. The light from the parking lot outside gave him all he needed to see, and standing at the end of the hall was the undeniable shape of a man. It appeared to be tall, shoulders squared and ready to charge. Get on the fucking ground, asshole! Dalton screamed, his gun squarely aimed at the intruder's chest. No reaction. Last warning! Get down! When the figure ignored the officer's commands a second time, Dalton allowed his trigger finger to do its job. The gun discharged twice! Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The invader dropped to the floor. Wasting no motion, Dalton moved forward to the living room. A quick flip of the light switch, and he was relieved to find the lights worked fine out here. The small living room provided no real place for another intruder to hide, as the kitchen shared the space and Dalton's bathroom was connected to the bedroom. Unless someone else in here was invisible, Dalton felt confident that he was alone with whoever was lying down on the tile floor in his short hallway. Okay, you shit, let's see who you are! Dalton trotted over to the body on the floor and let out a shot gasp when he realized who he shot. What the fuck? The fallen intruder before him was not an intruder at all, but rather a dummy. A mannequin head attached to clothes set up to a coat rack. The clothing was stuffed with pillows to fill out the shape of a body. The head, not surprising, was adorned with a zigzag line across the left side, no doubt intending to resemble a scar. Suddenly, Dalton recalled the knocking from the neighboring apartment. Whoever was behind all this could still be in there. Slowly, he looked cautiously at his front door. He once again began the slow creep towards the exit when he heard the door from the next apartment burst open, followed by the unmistakable sound of running feet. Moving quickly now, Dalton charged into the parking lot of his apartment, just in time to see a familiar vehicle peeling out and make a breakneck turn onto the connecting street. The Jimmy 4x4 that tried to run him off the road on the first night of his investigation was still on the loose it seemed. Dalton quickly moved towards his own car, fully intending to give chase and call for backup in the process. However, as he ran towards his vehicle, he immediately realized that would be impossible. Whoever did this had taken the liberty of deflating all four of his tires. Dalton returned to his apartment and grabbed his cell phone. He always left it on the pocket of his blazer, and after tonight he told himself he'd have to make a point to plug it in by his bed each night. He began to dial the police station where his fingers froze. He heard a faint whispering coming from his hallway floor. As he turned his head to investigate, it occurred to him that the stuffed decoy on the floor was talking. Only the words were not coming from its mouth, but rather from its chest. Dalton carefully pulled away the clothes and found a small recorder hidden within the pillow that served as the dummy's chest. Listening very closely... He heard a message repeat over and over again. The voice warped in a demonic deep tone. The red is hate. 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 He listened to the entire tape front to back, and the four-word itinerary was all that played. Dalton held his phone in his hand for several minutes debating whether to call in to his colleagues at the MPD. He and Simon had decided to keep their end of this investigation private until they had real evidence, but Dalton wasn't sure if this was something to keep secret or not. His home had been broken into in the middle of the night, after all. In the end, he chose to call Simon, hoping his partner would be awake. They talked for an hour. So you're saying someone broke into your apartment and left a decoy? Creepy, Simon asked over the phone. Yeah, 
That stuff on the recorder makes me think what Nina told me. Weird color mantra that Sawyer was trying to use. You think it's related? I think all of this ties together, yeah. Look, I think you made the right choice in keeping this from your superiors of the MPD. That Jimmy 4x4 is still running around. Now tell me, how in a town so small has it not been spotted, especially if an APB is out for it? Do you think there might be some cover-up? I'm just about 100% positive. When I got back to my office in Baton Rouge, my watch commander informed me that special instructions had been sent before I was dispatched down there. Apparently the powers that be in Mandeville want me to make sure I blessed off on all this at the end that nothing at all was out of whack in that little town. He thinks I was sent down there just to put a nice coat of white wash on the whole case at the end. Sounds like Mandeville. Especially with Hardy being at the wheel. Okay then. Well, since no one was hurt, I guess we'll just keep this little incident between ourselves for the time being. I'll see you in a couple of days. Take care, partner. Be safe, Simon announced before hanging up. The next morning, Dalton went into the apartment next door to his and looked around. He found nothing of interest. Just an empty space. He stared into the vacant closet that bordered his own on the other side. He tried to imagine someone sitting in there, in the dark, knocking on his walls. Even with the bright sunlight pouring in from the windows, he still felt chills running up his spine. The following day, Simon returned from Baton Rouge and met up with Dalton. They went to breakfast, shared some more details of the case. Simon informed his partner that the warrant was in the works and he believed we'd have it in hand in a day or so. Dalton was pleased as he was eager to go and dig into whatever Dr. Sawyer was hiding. Shortly after, both men received texts informing them that Chief Hardy wanted to see them in his office immediately. Well, let's go see what the asshole wants, Dalton grumbled. I'm glad to be back in the fryer with you, partner. Dalton smiled and shook Simon's hand firmly. You're all right, man. Just in case you think all the times I've insulting you means I don't like you, I just want to tell you that. You're a square away, partner. And you're a true pro, Dalt. Glad I could learn from you. Less than an hour later, Dalton was kneeling on the floor of the police station, holding the corpse of Simon Lyman in his arms. Later that day, he'd find himself released from his career in police work. By the time Dalton sat up from Sherry Willis's bed to stretch his legs, the sun was starting to peek over the old building that made up the French Quarter. Their ashtray was full and Bradshaw's throat hurt from the long story and the chain smoking that had fueled it. Shit, Dalton. I had no idea you are holding all that in. I know you lost your partner and all, but shit. I can see why you never go back to your apartment these days. Dalton was staring forward, his eyes not locking on any one thing. He spoke in a distracted, dreamy manner. I never did tell him the story about why I left the NFPD. I'd have a few beers with him that night and tell him all the details. He was a pain in the ass, Sherry. But he was my friend. He deserved better than to be shot in the head by some fuck-up cop. I bet if we dig deeper into things, we'll find that the cop that shot Simon was one of Sawyer's patients, too. You said that tape recorder mentioned the red is for hate, right? And the screen on the computer went solid red before the cop shot him. Can't ignore that connection. The problem we have now is getting to Sawyer. 
I'd be willing to bet a million dollars that after Sawyer was killed, that warrant wound up in Hardy's hands. But that same million a second time that Hardy made that warrant vanish. If the truth lies with Sawyer, the brass in Mandeville is not going to help us get him legally. We get to him some other way. It's not like this guy is in hiding. Yeah. Unless we do this by the book, anything we could get might be worthless in court. I've seen many a scumbag walk free because the dumbass cop investigating the crime screwed around with due process. I don't know. But I do know that I'm exhausted, Dalton. Let's get some sleep and look into this tonight. I'm sure we can do something. Yeah, sure thing, darling. I'm fighting to keep these old eyes open right now, too. Dalton leaned over and kissed Cherry on the mouth. She smiled. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Really. I know it sucks. I'm your partner and all, but think of me as your partner now. A partner with benefits. Hey, Sherry. Just so you know, I... I do value you. I don't want you to think otherwise. I don't think I'd be doing as well as I am right now without you. Okay, lover boy. Don't get all sappy on me. Go to sleep. And fight some crime after we recharge our batteries. Good night. Or morning. Or whatever. Dalton said as his mind struggled more to remain focused. Sherry rolled over, and within less than a minute, Dalton fell into a restful slumber. In his sleep, he dreamed. Dalton walked down a deserted street. He recognized it right away, though. He was walking down Chart Street in the French Quarter. His old beat from the days with the NOPD. It was nighttime in his dream, and the music could still be heard coming from the direction of Bourbon Street, yet there was no one to be seen in any direction. His dreaming mind began to find this odd as he continued walking towards Jackson Square. Red. Green. Blue. He heard a voice whisper from somewhere ahead of him. The red makes you hate. The green makes you fake. The blue makes you... Do you... The voice repeated once more. Hello? Dalton called to the vacant streets before him. Somewhere roughly two blocks ahead of him, something moved. A vague human shape, perhaps. It moved quickly, almost appearing to float above the ground. Red, green, blue, it repeated again. The red makes you hate. The green makes you fate. The blue makes you... You. Dalton began to trot faster down the empty sidewalk. His slumbering mind fell into the logic that the dreamscape demanded. He'd walk past sloops of Sally Ports and observe the lights would either be red, green, or blue. He didn't question this as odd. Jackson Square was getting closer. Dalton walked past a window and stopped to observe two human silhouettes. They appeared to be two adults talking. As he continued to watch, his eyes went wide as the entire window suddenly went red. No! Don't look! Dalton screamed. But the dream did not respond to the pleas. Instead, the man watched as one of the silhouettes brandished a knife and stabbed the other over and over again in the chest. Then the window went black. Dalton continued walking and once again heard the familiar chant. Red. Green. Blue. Red makes you hate, green makes you fake, and blue makes you... you. Dalton finally arrived. Sitting in the center of the square was one single booth. Similar to the tarot readers that frequently set up shop there, on the table was a single burning. 
a figure was behind the table, its head down, its identity unclear. Dalton raced over and froze in terror. The figure looked up. It was Simon, his face demolished on one side, a huge gaping hole oozing blood on the back of his head. It was as if someone had taken him from the scene of his murder and propped him up in a chair. Only, he was alive. Dalton, how are you, partner? Simon, I'm so sorry. Oh, you mean this? The ghoul responded and began to dig his fingers into the exit hole in his face. Not so bad, being dead, Dalton. Not so bad at all. I just wish you didn't have to feel the pain all the time. I always imagined being dead would be painless. But shit, man. My head hurts. Simon. Dalton, this isn't like you. Sit down. Let me read your fortune. I... I don't want to. Sit! The wasted monster screamed, and Dalton looked down to see a chair was now available for him. Okay, uh, sorry, I just... I hate to see you this way. Ah, Dalt, you're breaking my heart. I mean, here I am with half my face sliding off, and you're bothered by it. I'm so sorry that my pain's causing you to have a bad day. Let's see what the future holds for Detective... Oops. I mean, Citizen Dalton Bradshaw. Simon dealt out three cards. As Dalton predicted, one was solid red, one was solid green, and the last one, solid blue. Now, Dalton, what does the red mean? The red makes you hate. Very good. And what does the green mean? The green makes you fake. Are almost done. What does the blue mean? The blue makes you... You. By George, I think he's got it. Simon, what does any of this mean? Help me. Dalton, I'm a figment of your mind. I can't tell you anything you don't already know. But I don't know any of this color stuff. I only know the little girl told me that Sawyer played some sort of color game, but I I don't know what it means. Clearly you do. If this is new information for you, you'd best wake up and find out how you got it. The dream began to collapse around Bradshaw, and he felt the sensation of his senses gathering, becoming real once again as the nightmarish scene of Jackson Square began to fade. Simon returned to chanting the colors, he continued to do so as Dalton returned to the world of the waking. He sat up in the bed that he'd shared with Sherry for the last few weeks. His face was sweaty and he was breathing hard. He looked over to his left and saw his bedroom companion was not in her normal spot. As he continued to come back to the waking world, he realized something else as well. The chanting that had accompanied his dream was still repeating. Red green, blue. The red makes you hate. The green makes you fake. The blue makes you... you. Dalton rolled off the bed and stood up. Something was going on. The voice was repeating from somewhere out in Sherry's hall. He didn't have his gun here, and as far as he could tell, there was nothing too useful in this room. He'd have to rely on his wits and fists in this situation. Slowly, Dalton crept towards the bedroom door. This scenario reminded him too much of the situation in his apartment two days before Simon would be shot, and he'd be fired. Only this time, the intruder wasn't hiding. He wanted to call out for Sherry, but if there was something dangerous, he didn't want to tip the apple cart by startling anything. Dalton was relieved that the door connecting the bedroom and hallway were wide open, so at least he wouldn't have to go through the obstacle of opening it. Slowly, he peered into the hallway. 
There was enough light from the city streets that he could make out yet another similar scene. Standing in the hallway was a human-shaped figure, much like the one from his apartment. This one, too, seemed to stand too far off the ground. Another dummy? A coat rack? He asked himself. The recorded voice continued to spill out, seeming to come more from the center of the figure than where the mouth should be. Another game? Another attempt to freak me out? His mind asked. The street light from outside cast enough light for Dalton to see the light switch at the wall of the hallway. He pondered as to whether or not they'd come in and fooled around with the lights as they did in his apartment. He didn't want to sit here in the dark all night and figure it out. In one quick move, Dalton lunged forward and flipped the switch. The lights came on this time, and what Dalton found standing before him was not a mannequin, but rather the remains of a young woman with sea life tattoos covering her arms and a tape recorder hanging around her neck. From the recorder played the same message over and over. Red, green, blue. Dalton's eyes grew wide as he raced forward, grasping the body hanging from the coat rack. Her arms had been twisted and bound in such a way that she propped upon the fixture like an old piece of clothing. Sherry, he screamed as he pulled her down from the rack. Her body was limp and lifeless. Baby, please, please be all right. You're going to be fine. Come on, baby, open your eyes, please. However, despite all of his pleading, the young, vibrant woman he'd known from before, the same woman who'd helped him cope with the last few chaotic weeks of his life was now just a corpse. Who did this to you? Who did this to you? He cried as he grasped her body face buried in her hair. The recorder continued to play its apathetic eulogy as the man crumbled into an abyss of grief. The police were called and reports were filed. Questions were asked over and over. Crime scene investigators did their thing within the small apartment. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As this took place, Dalton sat in the office of Francis Lombardi, current watch commander for the 8th Precinct, New Orleans Police Department. Dalton knew Lombardi well, had worked with him for years before leaving the NOPD. If you're worried you're a suspect, don't be, he told Dalton. Wouldn't care fucking fry me at this point. I'm tired, Francis. I hear that. Lost your position out there in Mandeville. Whole mess over here makes me actually glad to be working in the city, not in the suburbs for once. It's connected. So you've told me. You think that mess out over on River Road with the two actors is connected too, right? Yeah. 
Makes me wish you were still one of my cops, Dalton. Doing a lot more here than you were out over there. Well, I think I'm done with police work. Two people that I care about have been killed in the last month. Fucking toxic. I would say you're lucky. Lots of good people are dead in connection with this mess. You're still walking. It says a lot. Mandeville's turning a blind eye to all this. The hardy bastard. He knows what's going on and just... Gives me a little press releases and hides behind his desk. This is what we get for it. Good people dead. Well, we're not turning a blind eye. Two actors, they killed in Jefferson Parish. So that falls on those guys to investigate, but your girl, Miss Willis, she was murdered on my watch. We're not going to shovel snow on this, Dalton. If there's a way to solve it, we'll do it. Dalton smiled weakly. Too bad Drexy isn't still on the job. You get a dug into this. I miss that guy. It makes two of us. Either way, we got CSI going through every thread of her apartment. We're looking at all the city surveillance cameras to see who came and went down from that apartment building during the time that you fell asleep and the time you woke and found her. I'm also going to reach out to the state attorney general's office tomorrow and see what I can get done about this. This other stuff you told me. This Dr. Sawyer, for example. If Mandeville is going to cover this all up, I'll have to shine some light on it myself. Good luck with that. Look, I appreciate everything you're doing, and I'll cooperate with anything you want. I got no faith in the system anymore. They seem to have every angle covered out there. Dalton, we got a spare bedroom in my place. I know Denise would love to see you again. If you want to. You're welcome to stay in my place for a few nights. I can't pretend to understand the darkness you're in right now, but I know it helps to be around other people. You haven't seen my kids since they were starting middle school. Janice is going into her senior year of high school. and Francis, thank you, really. I just want to get home. I've been back in my place in Mandeville in almost a week. You sure? I know what I need right now, and it's some quality alone time. If you need me for anything, call. If you decide I'm prime suspect, just send some guys over to blow my fucking brains out. Save me the trouble of doing it myself. Plus, I'm Catholic, so you know. If I do it myself, I'll go to hell. Dalton, shake my hand, Francis. Bradshaw stated as he stood to his feet. Francis Lombardi did as he was asked, and watched as a very broken man exited his office. About an hour later, he pulled into the small parking lot of his apartment complex. He saw the adjoining apartment was still apparently vacant, given the lack of blinds in the windows and the clearly empty rooms within. Given his current mood, if killers showed up to take him out tonight, he would likely lie down and tell them where to start cutting. Dalton unlocked the door to his apartment and stepped inside. He immediately realized that something was very, very wrong. His television was turned on and it seemed that every light in the place was going. He shifted his gaze from left to right. To the left was the short hallway containing his bedroom. To the right was the kitchen. He could see most of it but there was a narrow blind spot at the counter and stovetop area. The volume of the television was turned up very high, and the man struggled to try and hear any movement to indicate where the intruders may be. Dalton's gun was still stashed in the bedroom behind the bed, essentially useless to him in this current situation. 
Instead, Dalton positioned the longest key on his keyring between the knuckles of his pointer and index finger, and began to move slowly through the apartment. His eyes were mainly on the bedroom, as that would be the prime hiding spot. Suddenly, his ears detected a metallic sound from the kitchen's blind spot. He froze. The noise came again. The sound of metal being dragged across the ceramic countertop. His mind imagined a knife, long and sharp, picked from his own kitchen and aimed right at his back. He glanced at the television, and with the luck of the devil caught the scene just as one commercial transitioned into another, causing the screen to momentarily go black, providing a perfect mirror. In that moment, he saw the knife. He saw the outline of the intruder. They were right behind him. He knew that he was a goner, but would be damned if he allowed someone to take him out so blindly like that without some sort of fight. Clutching the keys he'd crafted into a makeshift weapon, Dalton turned on his heels and in one quick motion, raised his hand ready to strike. Mr. Dalton, it's about time you came home. You know, it's really irresponsible to leave a child unattended like this. Dalton let the keys drop to the floor feeling a mixed sense of relief and rage. Standing before him, holding a butter knife in one hand and what appeared to be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the other, was Nina Hopkins. She walked around him and dropped onto the couch as though nothing out of the ordinary was going on at all. The relief broke and Dalton felt the rage flow uncontrolled. He went with it. What the fuck are you doing in my house? He screamed at the girl. Well eating a sandwich and watching Hell's Kitchen at the moment, Gordon Ramsay is sort of my crush. Dalton ran over to the wall and pulled the power cable from the television, bringing on a silence that was soothing, but doing little to dissipate the anger he was feeling. Okay. Why? Why the fuck are you in my house? First of all, I was in the middle of watching that. Now I'm going to miss who wins the taste it, now make it challenge. Second, the word you're searching for is please. As in, Nina, please tell me why you're in my house. You listen to me. I don't have to say please to some little fucking kid that breaks into my place when I'm away. And I don't have anywhere to go, all right, Mr. Dalton? For a moment, he looked at her face, looked into her eyes and saw a very human element of distress there. Regardless of the stories he's heard about her, she was a child. He wanted to drag her out of his apartment and deposit her at the nearest police station. And perhaps he would have. But he was... He was... So... Damn... Tired. He had no energy to deal with anything beyond yelling, and he was starting to believe that yelling was not the solution here. Instead, he sat across from her. What do you mean you don't have anywhere to go? What about the youth center? Mrs. Hayes? They hate me there. They think I'm a monster. I heard Miss Hayes on the phone when she was talking about me. She kept calling me Little Psycho. She exaggerated that story about Danielle, too. Yeah, I stuck her with needles, but they were just like little safety pins, not knitting needles. You've got to admit, Mr. Dalton, knitting needles would have likely killed someone. Yeah. I, I just thought that was bad writing at first. I can't go back to my parents. I can't go back to Mrs. Hayes. So, so I came here. How did you know where I live? Mrs. Hayes had your information in her office. Sorry for breaking into your house. I just, I don't have anywhere to go. Dalton thought. 
She's fucking playing, you idiot. Putting on a little sympathy routine to get her way. You can't let her stay here. Not just because she's a runaway, but also because she's a manipulator. She wants something, and you know she's playing you for it. Please? She asked. I can cook. I make great sandwiches. I was allowed to help in the kitchen so I can make other stuff. I'll clean and take out the trash and... Nina, I'm sorry. But it just doesn't work this way. You got to call Miss Hayes and let her know where you are. I know you don't want to go back to the group home, but it's where you belong. Dalton watched as Nina's facial expression changed almost instantly. The sad little girl vanished, and what remained warped quickly into a face of sly knowing and controlled spite. He was taken aback for a moment by the sheer raw emotion on such a young child. Her eyes, though, her eyes never changed. They remained focused and determined. Okay, fine. Call Miss Hayes. Send me back. But you didn't let me finish, because... Maybe you don't care about me cooking or cleaning. But if you let me stay here, I can lead you straight to Dr. Sawyer. Sawyer's not in hiding. I can go find him anytime I want. The only holdup has been in getting the right paperwork. Boring! Nina interrupted. Sawyer doesn't care if you arrest him, Mr. Dalton. He's dying. I know that. That's why he retired. I asked him once. Right before he helped me get out of the hospital, what if he ever got in trouble for something that Vickers and Antoine might do? And he told me that he'll be long dead before he ever served the first day of his prison sentence. Dalton scanned her face for signs of a lie. But so far couldn't tell. She continued. But I can get you to him. He'll still talk to me if I ask him. I won't need any fancy warrant to get him to talk. I could show you where he does other stuff, too. I know where the real Jeff's killer's hangout is. And it isn't Shortcut Road. In many ways, Dalton was relieved at the sense of excitement he felt over the possibilities of a new lead in this. Before he opened his front door and found this girl hiding in his apartment, he was ready to lie down and die. He felt that the death of Simon and then Sherry would have taken it all out of him, but here he was, feeling like a cop again. Maybe there was a way to make this work. Nina, if you know these things, you have to tell me, please. I'll be happy to, Mr. Dalton, but only if you let me stay here with you. Dalton stared forward for a moment, looking beyond Nina allowing his exhausted mind to cycle through options. Okay, I'll have to talk to Miss Hayes. She has to at least know where you are. If she's okay with this, I'll think about it. But you have to help me get Sawyer. No riddles, no crap. Do what I tell you and help me get that bastard. And this isn't permanent. You can stay here a few days, but you will have to go back to the youth home soon. Deal? Nina's face suddenly became joyful in such a way that no one would believe she could possess the ability to commit any act of violence. Deal! Yes! Oh, thank you, Mr. Dalton! I promise you won't regret this! I, I'll help you, and, and you'll be a great cop again! Before Dalton could speak any further, Nina walked around him and plugged the television back in. The booming voice of Gordon Ramsay filled the room. The British chef screamed at some contestant or another 
What are you, a fucking idiot? Dalton looked over at Nina, sitting on the couch. Eating his food and laughing with glee. And answered Ramsey's question. Yep. I am one fucking idiot. Hey there kids, it's me, Mr. Creepypasta, and I just wanted to tell you thank you so much for watching tonight's video. Or listening to tonight's podcast on the podcast, if you're listening to that there at Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you can happen to listen to podcasts. I wanted to remind you guys also that my wife sells loose leaf tea at etsy.com slash shop slash ivory monocle tea. She has different teas, including creepypasta teas, and you can get a Mr. Creepypasta tea. If you ask for a dabbing sticker, she also has those. And of course, I wanted to give a big thank you to everyone who checks out patreon.com slash mrcreepypasta and supports the show, keeps the light on, gives me treats for my now two cats, both Hylas and Hercules. Both of them are a handful. And especially a big thank you to Hahasaha, Jordan Alexander Sanchez, Mazakin, Ken Lando Higuchi, Chambinski, Nico Kao, Tristan Pelton, Stephen Van Hus, Chance Burnett, Diana Krause, G. Weevil 3, The Red Oak Shield Virus, Hades Nephew, Carter Barenfanger, Dr. Strawberry, Jordan Wayne Deckard, Bradney Lipe, The Government Monitoring System, Anne Charon, Rumble Fox, Acid System, Mike Bullock, Rafael Rodriguez, Dan Sweet, Mad Marshdomp, Prozac and Pancake Appreciation Society, Sean Mills, Brian Arce, Cryptic Nightmares, Shadow Morningstar, Somber Puppet, Rihanna Wright, Someone You Love, Said the King 56, Bad Honey, S-Man, Kiri the Sloth, Patrick Schoolmeister, Thomas Burgett, Barbara Maceo, Bobby Carmen, Liam Newman, The Homeless Bird 93, Sky Harbor, Caleb Dougal, Last Blade Song, Eliminator 86, The Ginger Bros, Aaron Stormcrow, and Corey X Kenshin. A big thank you to all of you guys and everybody down there in the description. I really can't thank you guys enough for supporting the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And everybody who listens, sweet dreams. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.